Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, November 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, we have a really exciting guest on tonight's show. Our good mutual friend, Rob Schmoltz, said, Hey, have you guys ever thought of having Caesar Brea on the show? Uh, and we said, who is that? And he said, you need to get him on there ASAP. And when Rob talks, we listen. So we're real excited to have Caesar on the show. Caesar is a partner at Bain & Company, where he is in the advanced analytics and marketing practice. Welcome to the show, Caesar. Thanks for inviting me, guys. A pleasure to do it. We are thrilled to have you. And uh, Caesar, if you've uh, heard the show before, you know, we always like to start off by having guests give us a little bit of their background and how they sort of came into their current roles. So could you uh, give us the the recap of your career? Sure. So uh, I am a uh, a several time uh, Bain person, actually. The last time I was here was in the uh, mid late 90s. I was doing a lot of work in high tech and and software. And I uh, left to help build a couple of different software companies. uh, ended up at one point uh, helping to run sales and marketing at Razorfish, um, and then later on uh, built a marketing analytics consulting firm. And a couple of years ago, I got uh, invited to uh, come back to Bain, and I've been back now a couple of years and, and really enjoying this uh, this latest uh, iteration. Nice. So you're basically a boomerang. Yes, I am. Uh, I, I've kind of, I guess one way of putting that is I can't hold a job very well, but uh, but I'm really glad to be back at the firm. <laughs> uh, and you, you mentioned that one of your previous roles was uh, at, at my current employer, Razorfish, which both makes me super excited. But it's also kind of sad because I, uh, I feel like that's a, a storied brand and name in our industry that uh, is uh, falling under decreasing use as uh, all the agencies in the Publicis group sort of merge together. Yeah, it's true. I, I, I'm a proud uh, Razorfish alum. It was a privilege to work there. I got a chance to work with some incredibly talented people. Um, uh, Bob Lord, who's now at IBM, uh, is an old friend and a, and a, a former boss. And he, he uh, originally asked me to come help out there and uh, got a chance to work with really some incredible people um, that uh, to this day I, I sort of follow and, and keep track of and I'm in touch with. Uh, still learn a ton from. So it's, uh, I feel the same way about it. It was uh, a really amazing place. And, um, but that's the way a lot of things work out. So. Uh, indeed. And a uh, fun fact on Bob, I run into him occasionally at industry events. And my, my favorite thing is to, uh, for those that don't know, Bob is the, the uh, chief digital officer for IBM. Um, and so my favorite question to ask him is why IBM needs a chief digital officer. I always, I'm like, who's the chief digital officer at Facebook or Google? Yeah, I think for me, that's a thinly veiled excuse to, uh, to have Bob Lord. So they're lucky to have him and whatever, whatever role makes sense doesn't matter. Uh, so that's the way I look at things like that. No, I, I totally get it and totally agree, but it's, it's fun to needle him a little bit, uh, uh, as he also was my former boss. So it's, 
it's fun that it's safer now. (laughs) Caesar, what is, um, so analytics and marketing are near and dear to our heart. Tell us a little bit more about what that entails. So uh, the simplest explanation that I have for um, for folks who say, you know, what, what the hell do you do is I tell people I help big companies use big data to spend really big ad budgets better. How's that? Does that, that explanation work? Yeah. Yeah. I like uh, I like the use of big uh, around budgets, especially. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's um, my that's my that's the center of my bullseye. I would say uh, in in terms of what uh, we get involved with here, really, it, it, uh, in terms of what I've been doing, it ranges uh, pretty widely. I've done everything from um, churn reduction programs to assortment optimization to media mix optimization, um, really just uh, demand forecasting, really just a whole range of things that we're, that we're getting involved in uh, to help our clients you know, do, do better. Cool. So it sounds like someone in your company is engaging uh, with the company and they, they need an analytic ninja to come solve some really hard problem and they call Caesar. Is that, is that what happens? Uh, well, I, I would, yeah, I guess that's part of it. Uh, we more broadly, typically the, the work that we do involves sort of tackling, you know, a, a bigger issue for which analytics is kind of one part of the overall solution. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think that's, you know, to distinguish it from situations where you might just hire, say, a modeling firm to build you a model or, you know, or, or, or something like that. Yeah, it seems like you're solving uh, acute problems with data and and getting to solutions. Certainly are. It's a lot of fun. It's a great time to be in the business. How much if there was a pie chart of kind of the verticals that you uh, the company verticals that you interact with, how much of that pie chart would be what we would think of as retail and how much is something like, I don't know, the travel industry or the finance industry? Yeah. So, you know, that's that's varied a lot over over my career. I've actually worked in lots of different retail settings, big and small here. um, I would say uh, that. you know, probably about a quarter or a third of what I do is retail. I get involved in CPG a lot, and then the rest uh, varies. Could be everything from telecommunications, uh, finance, any number of different categories. But retail is certainly uh, now, and and certainly over the course of the years I've been doing this, um, been a a big piece of it. Um, principally because that's where a lot of the action is, right? It's uh, generally speaking a less regulated place. Um, People, the, the margins are thinner, so being good at data and good at analytics is more existential for, for, uh, for people. They either, you know, the, the, the people that can do that tend to survive and the people that can't uh, don't. So, um, so it's, uh, it's always been part of, what, uh, part of what I've been up to over the years. Cool. And um, we'll, we'll just go ahead and the, the big elephant that's always in the retail and increasingly other industries rooms is the Amazon elephant. Um, what do you, have you put any thought against Amazon and how retailers can either inoculate themselves or protect themselves or, or even just plain survive in a world where, where Amazon has become so dominant? Yeah. Well, first of all, the first thing to observe is, is it really is amazing how, um, how they are beginning to uh, go into places where, you know, historically you, you didn't think of historically you thought of Amazon as, okay, you know, I go and buy stuff online, but now when you think about it, they're, they're moving into customer experiences, into physical retail, into, into um, social uh, kind of formats and everything. Uh, and also on the back end on the product side, you know, that what they've done in terms of beginning to take over um, product categories with, you know, with their private labels uh, that's that's really extraordinary. So it's interesting, you know. Bain's done a lot of research in, into um, how 
what what Amazon is doing and how how to try to you know build a strategy that that um, well it may not be Amazon proof it it actually gives you a, a better shot of competing with them you know one one of the things that um, uh, that you think about is um, you kind of have a couple of choices one is you know do I do I try to um, find a place within their orbit where I can actually, um, you know, through some form of coopetition, kind of, you know, coexist with them. Uh, and the other is, you know, can I can I try to uh, build some ability to um, distinguish myself, or at least, you know, have a business in places that are that are sort of less susceptible to the Bezos flywheel. Um, the, uh, you know, I, examples of the former would be. Things like you know Best Buy deciding to sort of carry Amazon Fire TVs, or Kohl's deciding to accept Amazon returns because it brings people into the store, and then they can sell them other stuff that they sell at Kohl's, right? Those are those are kinds of kind of examples of of people trying to um, coexist. And then on the other side, you know, there's the question of well, you know, and, and this has kind of been the subject of some some research we've done um, about. Uh, uh, how do you how do you actually you know carve out a space where where you can survive? So, um, for example, um, you know you you if uh, one way to do it is through exclusive things that that don't otherwise sell on Amazon, right? And historically, I would have said Apple was an example, but I saw recently now that they're you know more and more they're 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 actually beginning to do um, first party distribution through Amazon. I guess the, the new iPhone XR is going to go through there now. I saw an announcement, I guess, in the last week on that. Um, uh, there, there are, uh, if you're big enough within a category, you can actually be cost competitive. Good example is, you know, tonight, if you go on walmart.com, you can buy the Viva paper towel 12 pack for like under 10 bucks and the same things on sale at Amazon for 15. Uh, or close to 16, actually. So, the, you know, if you're if you're uh, a player like Walmart that buys a lot of paper towels, or say Home Depot that buys a lot of, you know, um, stuff to to for DIYers, um, chances are you you know you can uh, you can compete on cost, but it, but that's that's going to be tough. Another example of a company that I think um, uh, is that's really interesting to me is Wayfair um, here locally in Boston. Um, they I think do a really good job um, on analytics, on actually uh, helping people discover what products sort of go with which products, um, uh, you know, in the long tail of things that they have in their product offering and doing a really good job of sort of, you know, putting together rooms and kind of cross-selling um, different products to people. And so if, you know, you, you got to find some way, you know, if you think of the Bezos flywheel as kind of, you know, selection and cost and experience, You've got to find some way to think. Okay, how am I going to end run what they're doing in one of those places at least? Uh, because if you can't, if you if you if you just try to sort of say, well, I'll just try to keep up, you know, you're you're going to get crushed. So um, that's I think a productive way to sort of unpack that problem and think about maybe what your strategic alternatives are. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and obviously, everyone has to sort of find a different vector uh, to compete with them. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned up front uh, that a lot of your analytics work goes towards helping people optimize their their big advertising spends. Um, and you, you mentioned you do a lot of work with CPGs. So it's uh, in that that segment, it's interesting because it seems like uh, the CPGs are both having to compete uh, with their advertising spends against Amazon. 
who I think is uh, periodically the the largest spender on Google, for example. Um, And then increasingly, Amazon isn't a, a... an important advertising platform that CPGs are spending on. So like, how do you, how do you think about that? And are, are you seeing uh, budgets uh, shift to Amazon and, and you know, what, how do you think that's all going to play out? Yeah, definitely. It, it's, uh, um, you know, being, being on Amazon, uh, if you're, if you're a CPG or, you know, frankly, if you're any other consumer products company that uh, where the products can be sold, there has now got to be a part of the, of the strategy uh, in ter- when I say be on Amazon, being being there from an advertising perspective, um, uh, Bain um, uh, earlier this year acquired a uh, a, a digital agency um, that we'd worked with for many years, a firm called Forward out in FRWD out in Minneapolis, and that that has a lot of experience in these areas. And that's you know helping clients figure out like how how to how to make that work is now a big part of of what we're doing in our marketing practice. And, and the other thing to, I think, bear in mind there, people talk about, you know, analytics, but in this case, um, you know, there's limited history, right? So a lot of what we end up, you know, getting involved with is actually testing this stuff and setting up uh, test programs to, you know, to, to figure out what, what's actually going to work. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about that. Like uh, does analytics mean a lot of sort of attribution modeling and figuring out, uh, you know how to spend the next best dollar and and media mixes and those sorts of things, or is it more predictive analytics and and uh, sort of programmatic AI based bidding type stuff, or both? I, I think I think the answer is I, I think the answer is both, but but I think I think um, one way I break it down uh, in terms of think what you're getting at, I think from my uh, from my perspective is actually. Um, Thinking both macro and micro, and and here here's here's um, uh, a a point of view on this that that might be useful. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of marketing organizations um, uh, end up doing uh, a lot of wonderful sort of micro optimization, whether they do it themselves or they do it with partners. You know, they'll figure out like you know how can I tune my my search budget or how how can I how can I uh, you know figure out a way to get lift over control on my on my display budgets with programmatic and then there's, you know, DMPs and CDPs and everything they're using to do all that stuff with. Um, but what's, what's interesting about that is that they typically are missing um, big opportunities at the macro level. They, they tend to sort of get down once a year and say, okay, our overall investment's going to be X. We're going to split it roughly this way across the channels. And then we tend to sort of, you know, ossify during the course of the year about, about you know how how we're going to sort of allocate that money across across different channels. Um, in a lot of cases, if if they're using TV, for example, they'll just go out and say, "All right, you know, the we're going to carve out this amount of money, and we're going to go buy it as cheaply as possible at the upfront, and then we're just going to you know run the campaign for the year, and we'll report it each week as we go." But there's not any meaningful, you know, sort of movement of of budgets or testing or anything like that that's happening. And so, um, you know, a lot of people see historically this kind of top-down media mix modeling approach and the bottom-up attribution approach is kind of in conflict. And I actually see them as as uh, sort of, you know, um, kind of yin and yang of of um, uh, of of what we're trying to do in marketing, where um, it is very important to be doing kind of uh, within a channel-specific uh, optimization. Uh, certainly want to take advantage of those opportunities. For example, you know, in search, let's say, you know, de-averaging your spend and maybe doing things by day of week or by day part or across your keywords, whatever. But 
Um, but equally important is actually to have this macro view where you say, you know, like um, at any given point in time, is my bottleneck in my business, you know, attract, engage, convert, or retain? And how should I be kind of disproportionately shifting my attention and my resources to solve things, you know, at that bottleneck in, in the latest month or the latest quarter? Um, and once I've solved it there, then I can sort of move on to the next bottleneck and figure out where my where my attention ought to be, as opposed to just sort of saying, okay, we're in six channels, let's be as sophisticated as possible in each of them and optimize to a fairly well at the micro level, but miss the big miss the big uh, the big shifts. Yeah, uh, so I, I can definitely see that, and I'm I'm particularly interested in that sort of um, macro view. Like, do you tend to see clients getting more sophisticated about how they do the macro view? And I mean. To me, it feels like uh, media mix modeling is several decades old now, and it seems like that's still the the predominant practice. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, you know, it's hard to believe that that's still the be- the best approach. Yeah, you know, so I think I think we need to distinguish between um, the analytics and the politics. So um, there's nothing, you know, a media mix model, of course, is only as good as the data goes in, that goes into it. If you don't have any variation, you know, in your data, if you just keep doing the same plan all the time, you're really never going to have a useful model because it's not going to tell you much. But if you do have some of that, there's there's certainly lessons that you can draw from the data. Um, uh, I think what what happens, though, is that a lot of organizations are, you know, it's that old expression about culture eating strategy for breakfast. Um, uh, the if you have a um, uh, a way of doing things that has led to the creation of a certain sort of um, you know organizational structure and collection of partners and agencies and so forth, um, those things all have a certain momentum associated with them. And so I, I think actually you know the well there are certainly opportunities to improve media mix models through creating. Um, you know, tests and creating and just artificially creating more variation in your data to help you, you know, with sort of the statistical significance of what you're looking at. I think the much more important uh, thing for people to really look at is to try to get people on the same page about um, where the opportunities might lie and and what they could be doing about that and and not sort of get fixed on on sort of some holy war between, you know, one analytic technique versus another. No, that's that seems like great advice. Um so speaking of holy wars, uh, I want to transition to uh, uh, the buzzword that seems like it, it it comes up most often, especially when you use uh, big data three times in the same sentence, um, and that's uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence and in particular machine learning. And, um, you know, you go to any of our industry events now and, uh, you know, you'll see 100 vendors claiming that they're uh, uh, an ML-based solution, like including the custodial services seem like they're machine learning based. Uh, and so I'm, 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 uh, that feels like a little bit of hype to me, but at the same time, it seems like there, there really is something there. I'm curious how you think about, uh, AI and machine learning and is it, is it really being yeah. embraced particularly by retailers? Well, um, a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I, you know, that movie fight club, right. And the first rule of fight club is we don't talk about fight club. Um, we, we have a saying around here, which is the first rule of advanced analytics is we don't talk about advanced analytics. We talk about results. And for me, all this stuff, you ha- any conversation that you have about AI or machine learning or whatever has to start not with, well, you know, do you have a squad of PhDs and are you using TensorFlow and, you know, yada, yada, but, but really um, what, 
is the uh, baseline performance of the business process and the statistical metric associated with that business process that you're trying to improve off of. And what progress have you made in the last, you know, three, six months, whatever, on both of those things. And so I don't care whether you get there with a simple algorithm or a, or a you know, a neural net or a three-eyed pigeon, um, you know, that you keep fed underneath your desk. I think the important thing is that these conversations have to shift from, uh, from talking about the thing uh, to talking about the result. The second thing that people need to kind of bear in mind when they think about AI is that um, AI isn't a tool so much as it's a, a, a process, right? You need to think in terms of, you know, picking the right question, making sure you have the right data for it. Um, you can't do real sort of AI without really big data and, and, and you have to sort of maintain a data platform to be able to do that. Um, you know, and then, and then you kind of got to make sure you can do something about it, right? So if you have some great insight, um, if you don't have the, you know, the marketing infrastructure, let's say, to sort of act, and we'll talk later about personalization, but, you know, if, if you can't, uh, if you discover that, you know, you, you can uh, target down to an individual level and distinguish people's preferences, if you don't have the sort of um, digital asset management system and the content management system and so forth to be able to handle communications at that level of granularity, you're really, you're really kind of, you know, um, not, not getting anywhere. And so I think a, a thing we see a lot um, is is people um, pulling together components of of a, an AI or an ML solution, um, but not thinking about the full system, and so they don't get the full value of it. I'm familiar with one company that you know had one group that actually went out and bought a DMP, but they hadn't really hired the people who knew kind of what to do with something like that. So it basically, sat on the shelf for about a year until until um, you know, managed to come together and actually help them apply it, uh, you know, to something, to something useful, get a result, and then actually get some enthusiasm for investing in all the pieces they needed to, to take advantage of that. And that's a, that's a good example. Now, having said that, um, you know, there's, there's exciting stuff happening with, with AI in the world of retail. I mean, uh, you know, one example, uh, there's companies like Planorama and Tracks that you're probably familiar with, you know, that, um, uh, that basically use image recognition to help you kind of keep your your you know your shelves kind of the way they need to be and and then um, and then help you tune that and and that's you know that's that's actually a um, you know there's there's applications like that that I think have enormous potential obviously to to kind of reshape the category um, but it all starts with having a clear idea of what problem you're trying to solve as opposed to just sort of talking kind of you know breathlessly about AI and how, you know, all the intergalactically wonderful things that you're going to be able to do with it. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, I doubt that uh, the the company you mentioned that that invested in a DMP with no plans uh, for using it was alone, by the way, in that. Oh, no, it happens all the time, right? <laughs> it's it's just, uh, you know, and I think I think it's a, a symptom of this idea that um, we we have confused the means for the ends where people are pursuing these things as, you know, things to be bought, initiatives to be, you know, undertaken, as opposed to uh, sort of viewing it from a results and performance perspective and saying, um, you know, how well am I, um, how efficiently and effectively am I out there, you know, attracting, engaging, converting customers? And to what degree does a DMP powered solution actually create some sort of lift over control, you know, over what I had before? You know, and at what point do I hit diminishing returns so I don't need to worry as much about the tech and need to worry more about, say, the content I have or the offer that I'm making or something like that, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, we on the show, we talk about it a lot is sort of the 
the shiny bauble problem that, you know, some some board member goes to a conference and they come back and send, send a note to the VP of e-commerce. What are we doing in machine learning? And, you know, three months later, they've got this cool data lake that's doing propensity modeling with, you know, zero plan to act on that or to change any customer experience as a result of it. Um, no, that's 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 true. It's very common. I, I, I you know, uh, you got uh, in all these things, you got to target better and market better. Right. So if you're only doing the target better part um, and you don't have the the engine to kind of do the market better part, you're you're um, you know, you're not going to get there. So yeah. uh, the, I'm curious. The one example you, you gave was uh, uh, I sort of think of as um, back of house optimization, sort of improving inventory and, and shelf management. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard a couple of people. Uh, theorize that the uh, in the short term that the biggest opportunities uh, for uh, machine learning to make really you know practical impact on on retail are those kinds of things that it's it's inventory optimization and cost avoidance and those things more so than necessary necessarily dramatically do new or different customer experiences. Yeah, I I um, I think uh, I I prefer not to generalize too much about it. I like to find itches to be scratched, right? So, um, you know, one, uh, one company that I'm familiar with, um, you know, looked at it from the perspective of having a chronic problem with overordering for, you know, for the sales that they had. And there were a variety of reasons why this happened. You know, a, uh, a demand forecast that wasn't as accurate as it needed to be. They had kind of a hard to learn ordering application. They had um, organizational structures that had grown up to, you know, to compensate for that, that introduced a lot of bias into the system. Um, and and so in that case, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we, we were able to help them basically uh, reduce um, the forecast error that they had, improve the order management interface, and actually um, you know, kind of change some of the organization and operating practices that kind of wrapped around all that. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is, is that it's, for me, all these things come up from very specific, um, use cases. I, I, I would say, um, it, I just prefer generally not to, you know, not to sort of write off, um, one, uh, one category or another, every conversation, that we have, you know, tries to start with, tell me, tell me specifically kind of what, what, you know, your data is telling you about where the problems are in your business and, and then sort of work up from something specific that we can get our arms around. Um, that that's proven to be kind of a, you know, generally a more, more successful way of sort of tackling the application of these kinds of technologies. No, that, that seems uh, totally fair and wise. And I a hundred percent agree the three-eyed pigeon under Scott's desk has way too much open to buy and is definitely overspending. <laughs> um, so one thing I kind of, uh, you know, when you start thinking about this machine learning stuff, it feels like as a startup guy, kind of like the next network effect, right? So you're you're gathering more data, you're getting smarter, that creates this nonlinear advantage over competitors. Uh, and then I started thinking, well, then is it true the companies with the most data win? So, so then I kind of come to this place where no one's going to have as much transactional data as the big guys, like you know, uh, on the e-commerce side, Alibaba, Amazon, yeah, 
Bay, then even on the ad networks, you know, yep. um, we all, everyone thought these ad networks would create this huge democratization of ad platforms and, you know, uh, but then now they're really just kind of, it's an ogalopoly with. Right. There's Facebook. two of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so does it mean kind of game over because those guys have all the ad data and the commerce data, or is there hope if I am a smaller independent company and that could mean even like, you know, Best Buy in this, this world we're talking about, yeah. um, Help me understand that as kind of a, an outsider of how you're thinking about that. Yeah. Um, so um, one one way to I think to process all this is there's no there's no question that that the types of sophisticated uh, machine learning algorithms, uh, things like you know uh, deep learning and neural net approaches and things like that, um, those really begin to shine when they have a lot of data to work with. Um, you don't, you know, a lot of people m misunderstand that, that, uh, unless you have a lot of data in general, the performance of one of those will, you know, um, may not even be as good as what you'd get with, you know, with some of the, you know, uh, some of the more conventional machine learning approaches, things like, uh, you know, um, gradient boosted trees and things like that. So, um, it, what I would say is though, is that, it isn't just about how much data you have. It really, it's really back to this idea that you want to think systemically. Um, you want to be performance oriented and think systemically about um, about what you're doing in, in terms of you know being aligned on where the opportunity is at any given moment, um, being you know having the access to the data to work with it, but then also having the the kind of uh, uh, the operational flexibility to act on it. I actually think that the people that are winning are winning less because they have big data and more because they actually just have cultures that are data driven, that are nimble, that are, that are tuned to act. Uh, and, and, um, and that, you know, frankly are just, you know, they're wired to, to move in a more agile way than, uh, than the traditional folks are, uh, that, um, uh, and, and the proof of that pudding actually is, just you know, if you look in if you look in sort of the, the CPG world, for example, and you look at where all the growth has been, it really is coming from these insurgents that are you know much smaller um, than um, you know than the than the uh, uh, tradition than the traditional players in the categories that they happen to play in, uh, but they just move faster and they're you know they are more um, analytic by nature, uh, even if they don't have access to the massive data sets that some of the you know some of the bigger players um, you know. Uh, could grab if, if they had the inclination to do it. Cool. So that's um, says some kind of best practices of the cutting edge. Um, just to backtrack a little bit, you, you've got a long history of seeing this. What are some common pitfalls folks fall on when they when they kind of think about you know using data and analytics to solve a problem? Well, I, I think um, uh, the I'll paint a, I'll paint a scenario you see a lot, um, which is. Um, company X hires firm Y, they give them all their data, the guys go off site, they build models, they come back, they present an answer and nobody understands the answer. And so they don't believe it. And so they don't do anything about it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the, the biggest, the biggest, um, so what, what's the, so what out of that? The biggest, so what is that there is an enormous opportunity to get more out of your um, modeling efforts by uh, making the process of understanding the data that's going into it something that's much more sort of shared. Um, there's a famous um, 
a famous statistician named John Tukey, who invented a, a field called exploratory data analysis. Um, and uh, one of the things that we're very keen on is um, kind of exploratory data analysis for the masses. And so what do we mean by that, right? So like what that means is um, rather than let's take the, in the media mix modeling context, uh, rather than sort of waiting for the firm to come back and tell you that the marginal ROI of search is, you know, is X and that of TV is Y, um, let's just go throw some basic line charts up on the wall and look at what happens when you spend more on TV. Do, do searches go up? Do, you know, do site visits go up? Do conversions go up? And just begin to have a conversation as business people about what we're seeing actually in the data before we actually turn it over to the modeling firms to actually go process that and crunch it and come back and tell us, you know, what it all what it all meant at kind of an aggregate, um, you know, statistical measure perspective. Um, because I, I think that, um, you know, doing that really empowers marketers. It, it kind of takes analysts and marketers, you know, who typically are kind of this passive aggressive relationship and turns them into collectively analytic marketers. And that, that part of the process, I think, is highly underrated as, as a, um, a really valuable, um, uh, you know, part of the whole sort of machine learning process that, that, uh, that companies are trying to take advantage of. I'm, I'm sensing a trend that the, uh, it almost seems like, in general, it's uh, wise for, for businesses to sort of have a, a, a practical, well-grounded macro strategy before they jump right into crazy tactics. I think I think it just uh, yeah certainly I, I think uh, what what I see a lot of is companies that um, in fact a couple of things I've seen this week basically where where people have um, kind of a, a product out report out kind of way of interacting with their data and decision making where they say all right you know we we have product X it's week you know end of the year compared this week with last week and you know in the context of the overall media plan we changed the creative this week um you know they're they're basically just thinking in sort of very static kind of um uh you know we're we already are it's just reporting on what they're doing as opposed to saying you know uh what what is what is the bottleneck in our business if you ask that question you say okay where's the bottleneck and what are we doing about it that that drives you to go, um, you know, explore the data in different ways than if you're just basically saying, you know, how did this week compare with last week or how did this quarter compare with last quarter or year on year, whatever comparison you're trying to make. Um, and that, that we find is a, you know, a healthy, healthy access. It, I think really important is it's an accessible way of thinking about the problem, which is, which is important in a world where even though obviously data and analytics are more important, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, marketers, retailers, e-commercers, you know, out there that, that, um, that didn't grow up that way and, and are just coming to this. For sure. And, uh, speaking of, uh, sort of not growing up that way and having, having to evolve, uh, a question we get asked on the show, uh, super frequently is about omni-channel attribution, right? And, uh, I'm, I'm curious if you have any sort of thoughts or best practices and, uh, you know, if, if folks are starting to break yeah. out of the silos and think well, I'll about tell you, I'll tell you what not to do. And then I'll back into what maybe some, some things that do work. Uh, what doesn't work is the classic, okay, let's gather up all our data. Let's throw it into one big, you know, repository and then try to big one, one big honking attribution model out of it. Um, even if that's down at the granular level where you're saying, okay, you know, 
um, IDX saw this ad, you know, 30 days ago and, you know, came back and, and so we'll assume that that ad worked. Um, that, that is, um, that kind of like throw it all into one big pot kind of approach, I think has, has been, uh, I think most people have sort of realized, you know, that, 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 that doesn't work. Um, in the work that I've done, I've had the uh, opportunity to work some really, you know, strong, uh, people in this, um, in this category, um, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, the guys at Visual IQ were uh, the, my first landlord back in the day when I had my old company, and those guys are pros and they they know what they're doing. Um, when we worked together, one of the things that we did was we tried to first look at kind of macro categories of of results and spending and so forth, and figure out okay you know, which are the dominant channels that we need to optimize against each other in this overall mix, and then just focus on just getting like one, one pair of, you know, a couple of channels working together productively, right? So, so if their mix had, you know, say, um, TV and search, uh, and then, and then, you know, from there, the, obviously the conversion through the, through the uh, buying channel, um, we try to just, you know, try to get TV and, uh, you know, search optimized together. If it was search and say, right, it was display and search, and you're just trying to basically say, okay, to what degree does display spending drive subsequent search behavior? Let's, let's get, you know, let's get that uh, kind of taken care of. And, and so the, the, the smart approach was, you know, sequenced. It was picking, you know, prioritizing the channels that mattered, getting those two working together, you know, well, seeing what kind of lift you got in terms of the results there, and then recycling both the results and the lessons into the next step that you take, as opposed to this kind of, you know, throw, all it, throw it all into one big pot and, and hope for the best. That, that certainly makes sense. It, it's funny when I, um, when folks ask about omni-channel attribution, uh, I find that, there's even uh, dramatically different dimensions that people are thinking about. Like often they're thinking about um, the, the various uh, advertising vehicles like uh, television versus search, for example, um, which I, I, uh, you know, I think is that first spin you took. Sometimes they're talking about the channel attribution. Uh, you know, when, when someone does a, a mobile checkout in that store, is that a online sale or a in-store sale and those sorts of things. And sometimes they're talking about a, touch at a device attribution when someone browses on that tablet and then consummates the purchase on that desktop. How do we, how do we do that sort of things? Um, for, for any of uh, the one that I'm most interested at the moment, as we were right in the throes of uh, black Friday and it's, it's going to mm. be the most uh, digital sort of holiday uh, we've ever had both, both online and in the stores uh, any particular thoughts or, or uh, pitfalls or best practices you're seeing in terms of, the the actual channel attribution the the online to dig, uh, to in store and vice versa that kind of stuff. Uh, well, I I tell you what's what's really interesting is uh, what I'm seeing a lot right now is people trying to jump the gun on the on Black Friday all the Black Friday deals that are now being trolled, kind of you know in advance and and. Uh, uh, as I've, I've been tracking a few things, just both for professional and personal interest, um, and watching the you know the prices come down, and uh, and and uh, and seeing whether or not it's almost like we're almost watching sort of like airline pricing happen in in sort of uh, you know uh, retail world now, where you're basically you know you have this 
uh, attempt to sort of drop the price and see if you can actually get um, people to, uh, you know, to buy before Black Friday at the Black Friday price or something close to it. Because it's really, it's really in, it's, if you think about it, it's a, uh, it's an experience nightmare, right, to um, try to cram everybody into the store at a specific time, have people trampled to death, you know, as you, as you, as you go in. Um, and, and so anything you can do to basically sort of smooth and, uh, and optimize the, um, you know, the, the uh, flow of demand into your channels and your ability to fulfill that is actually going to be, um, is actually going to be uh, something that's to the benefit of the business. So I, to me, that's the most interesting thing about this particular um, edition of, of Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday is to sort of watch kind of the, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of, um, sort of like the, you know, the back in the old days, the Oklahoma Sooners who were trying to jump out ahead of other people to kind of stake their claim. And, uh, and it's not unlike, uh, you know, uh, airline seat pricing now, I think is, is what we're beginning to see happen in, in, in retail. Yeah. The, um, so one of the big battle areas is CPG and, and you're, sounds like you're involved in there to some degree and, uh, grocery, um, where do you think that's going? So, so we're seeing Walmart, uh, really kind of triple down on curbside grocery. There's a lot of people experimenting with delivery of grocery, um, and then within CPG, you know, you have so much going on with these new challengers that are, are kind of digitally native brands. Yeah. Uh, you got the old guys trying to react to that and maybe acquiring some. Give us some thoughts on, on where you see this going. Well, um, so, you know, the, the, the question here is very often uh, at what point do these insurgents um, you know, get picked up by uh, the bigger players because obviously the bigger players do, you know, bring um, a lot of advantages to the the table in terms of uh, distribution, in terms of, um, you know, just in terms of uh, uh, their ability to also on the back end provide a, a supply chain to actually get things built at scale that a lot of these folks can't, you know, can't manage uh, as they're trying to grow. Um, so, um, uh you know the the on the other hand uh, all the growth in in uh, pretty much all the growth in cpg over the last few years has been from these sort of insurgent players that are sort of building these you know these these uh these new brands with a lot of authenticity and everything in them i i um uh, what, one of the things that's interesting you know is historically in cpg you you may be familiar with the uh, kind of a fellow named byron sharp who basically said for fast moving consumer goods it's really all about mental and physical availability, right? So it's not, it's not about loyalty so much or segmentation. It's about just making sure that, that you're out there reaching and repeating um, and then that you have distribution in the stores and that basically that's how you won in that category. Um, what, what we're seeing now is sort of a, a, a movement away from that where certain brands develop very loyal followings. Um, uh, you do in fact segment uh, more than you used to and and I think what we're beginning to see is this kind of weird middle zone where, um, you know, the the uh, the new folks and the old folks sort of need each other. It's kind of this symbiotic kind of thing where, um, you know, the the CPGs need these insurgent brands. Um, uh, will acquire them to to drive growth to begin to kind of uh, expand their opportunities. But at the same time, the insurgent brands kind of really need 
the 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 heft and the scale and the distribution of the both on the manufacturing side and the distribution side that a you know that is that one of these large CPGs with their big sales forces for example can uh, can bring to bear and uh, that um, you know that's probably the, that sort of interplay between you know uh, those 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 two kind of um, types of players is is probably the most interesting place right now um, to see evolve and particularly in a world where even as that's happening, the distribution channels are evolving, right? Everything from, uh, from you know, drone delivery to, you know, to uh, Amazon as an advertising channel to, um, you know, so that, that's that sort of kind of uh, zone. Um, there's a geographic for term for that, that that's not coming to mind, but that's, that's I think, uh, where we should watch for a lot of interesting action over the last, next couple of years. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's going to be a really interesting category to follow because I, I feel like the disruption is is really only just getting started there at the moment. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit uh, to another um, pot- potentially interesting uh, topic uh, that comes up a lot that also has a, a buzzwordy component, and that is uh, personalization. Um, so, you know, again, lots of Lots of folks get get directives from their board members to have a personalization right. initiative. Um, wh- how do you feel about that, and what what sort of best practices are you seeing there? Is that a real thing? So uh, again, uh, let's not confuse the thing for the result, right? When people talk about this, um, the question I have is, um, uh, what degree of personalization are we talking about, right? And and are there, are, you know, is 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 everybody sufficiently different that each person should actually have a materially different, um, you know, offer uh, or experience presented to them in order to generate the kind of lift that um, over over some more aggregated approach that you know that you need to see. So in general, yes, a you know there there have been um, there's studies out there that basically say that. You know, compared with a with a plain vanilla, offer the same thing to everybody. Um, you know that obviously a personalized, targeted, segmented approach is actually going to create some lift. But I, I, I think it really is a question of degree. Um, there are certain um, there are certain things that are also easier to personalize than other things. So, for example, you know um, you can you know to the degree that it's legally uh, permissible, you can obviously vary a price vary a price uh, relatively easily in an offer. Um, but executing creative sometimes can be, you know, challenging and you certainly can't necessarily just, you know, kind of like morph the product itself on the fly for every individual customer. Maybe in some age where we have, you know, 3D printing, you know, widely distributed, you can, you can kind of do that sort of thing. But, um, but basically, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, there, there are limits to what you can do on certain dimensions and there's possibilities, there's more flexibility you have on other, on other dimensions. I, I, I think that the way to approach personalization is through um, having a really, really strong program of experimentation and kind of test, uh, test for results, test for learning, where, you know, you're constantly sort of testing whether or not, um, you know, that extra sort of bit of variety actually provides enough economic lift that it's worth the incremental complexity that it's adding. Um, and as I said, in some cases, the dimension that you're varying the experience on is actually much more flexible than, than another. Uh, a number in a digital, you know, a, 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 a degree of offer, um, a promotional discount in an email is much easier to vary 
than even the creative that's wrapped around that. At least at the moment, it may eventually be that we get to automated creative and so forth. But as we are beginning to, but uh, but for the moment, it's it's um, you know for most companies, um, uh, there are limits to just how how finely they can slice things. Cool. So we're up against time, but we we love to ask kind of uh, uh, more of an out there question. We've been kind of tactical here, um, and I've seen you've got some really interesting tweets about. Um, AR, VR, and you just mentioned 3D printing. And Jason and I love to think about some of this stuff sometimes just to kind of get out of the the day-to-day. Where do you see the future of commerce? And and feel free to kind of go out three, five, 10, 20 years. Would would love to get your any interesting thoughts on that. Wow. Well, um, you know, uh, I think, I think one way to think about this is, is, is that we, in the end um, we, Buying things and consuming them is sort of a means to um, physic to meeting physical and emotional needs, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you know, to the degree that technology evolves, um, we will we ultimately need to think. You know, we ultimately need to think in terms of how we're sort of doing. You know, doing those things as opposed to the products that happen to be the the sort of vehicles for fulfilling those those objectives, right? Um, I mean, not not to be like super esoteric about it, but um, you know, if if I am, uh, um, uh, I mean, well, let, let's take for example um, clothing, right? Um, you know, if 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 in the world of you know uh, 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 VR and so forth, I can begin to sort of project an avatar out there, you know, then then basically you you know you your, your way of sort of interacting with people may change. And if your ability to sort of, you know, uh, shift your shape on the fly sort of evolves, it, it means it has certain implications for the whole sort of, you know, fashion industry, right? So I, I don't want to get too intergalactically distant on this, but I think the main point is to basically say that we uh, should not confuse the means for the ends. We should think about um, the future of uh, retail and retail technology um, as something that's serving these physical and emotional needs, as opposed to um, figuring out how to get specific product X to you, you know, more more quickly, or or to give you a different perspective on it. Well, that's a great perspective. It's going to be interesting to uh, watch it all play out. Um, and that's going to be a great place to leave it tonight because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, but if listeners have any comments or questions about today's show, we encourage you to jump on our Facebook page and continue the dialogue there. As always, if this uh, show is valuable to you, we sure would appreciate it. If you'd uh, jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. Caesar, if folks want to learn more about uh, some of the topics that you covered and, and see what you're, you're talking about out on social media, where should they find you? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, Caesar Brea, uh, all one word on both um, Twitter and LinkedIn. So I'll certainly post uh, stuff there, some of the stuff we've talked about here, and, and uh, hopefully that'll be useful to folks. Cool. We'll put a link to that in the show notes and we really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Guys, thanks very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It was entirely our pleasure. Thanks very much, Caesar. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 